eagle-eyed among you will have noticed uh, that uh, my name is not on the schedule. It was due to be Tony uh, this week, but he's unwell, so I'm afraid you've got the supply preacher instead. Um, Let's pray for Tony now, shall we? Father God, we do pray that you would be with with our brother Tony. We pray that you would uh, help him to get better speedily. Father, we do pray for your hand of protection on him, um, especially at the moment with all the pressures, uh, both of church and home, that are on him. And we pray that you would would be close to him, to Lydia, and to Abby as well. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, and we trust also that God will open our eyes this morning as we consider his word um, to see wonderful things out of his law. Happy New Year. Not the first person to have said it this morning. Uh, And we've been thinking a bit, haven't we, uh, about the prospects for 2024 already. I wonder how you're feeling this morning as you uh, sit, as it were, at the start of this new year. I'm sure some of us can identify things in the coming year that we're excited about. Perhaps there's a new job or a new child or grandchild uh, that's expected to come. Perhaps there's a forthcoming retirement or maybe it's the possibility of recruiting a new pastor here at City. For others, maybe the main theme of 2024 you think is something to be concerned or, or nervous about. There's been a recent diagnosis, bad news about a family member, uncertainty at work, possibility of recruiting a new pastor here at City and what might that mean? And whatever it is that we're feeling about the year ahead, we know that it will hold things that we have no idea are coming as well. So whatever we think, whatever our thoughts and our feelings are about 2024, um, we have in 1 Samuel 4 and 5, the portions that we read, um, uh, we have an account from the Bronze Age, so that's rather a long time ago, um, but which has been given to us by God to help us. We're going to have, uh, we're going to see two truths and a resolution. It doesn't have to be the new year to have a resolution, but hey. And our passage starts, um, if you have a Bible, you may find it helpful to have it open at 1 Samuel 4 and 5. Um, Our passage starts with Israel reflecting on an event that's just happened. It's not a day in which Israel has covered herself with glory. The people thought that they were doing what God wanted them to do. do. They knew that he'd told them that they were to do battle with the sinful pagan tribes around them. And they knew that he'd said he would give those tribes into the hands of the people of Israel. And now the people have a new, a, a, a new uh, prophet, Samuel. There's no visible indication that there was anything that should have prevented the Israelites from finding success at the Lord's hand. But they weren't successful. They went up against the Philistines and they lost. And they didn't just lose slightly, they lost 4,000 men. So the elders of Israel gather around to talk about what went wrong. 
I don't know, maybe they had some corporate brainstorming, a team away day, a bit of feedback and a breakout session. But they got straight to the point. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? It's the right question to ask because they recognise that victory is God's alone to give. They recognise that the true God is not under our power. But, but they, they actually only do this for a moment. You see, they ask the right question, but they don't listen for an answer. Who knows what they would have heard? There will have been some reason that God did not give them victory that day. But instead, they forget what they know of God. To make matters worse, they assume, in fact, that it's God who's forgotten them. Their plan, they develop a plan, and it boils down to this. It's a wheeze to twist God's arm. Of course, they're slightly more sophisticated about it in the way that they think about it, aren't we all? But that's the essence of it. And so the Israelites have to learn or to relearn. Their history is a constant relearning of truths that they should know and isn't ours too. They have to relearn our first truth, which is that you can't manipulate the true God. Their plan is to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, where it currently is, and take it into battle with them. And then they're going to have to be saved. Right? As they say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, or you could, it could also be translated that he, that is that the Lord, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. It's the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. It, it contains the tablets of the law and, and other reminders of God's goodness to the people. And just in case he's forgotten his promises, just in case he's forgotten his goodness, they'll take the ark with them into battle. That should see them through. Who knows quite what the thinking is. Um, We're going to see a little bit of the logic. There is a certain sort of logic here, but there are other sorts of logic they might be using as well. so, so here's, the, here's the better sort of logic that they might be using. Um, they're, they're remembering the period of wandering in the desert. And as the ark set out from where, wherever they'd encamped, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And they might be remembering at Jericho, the ark was there, and they enjoyed glorious victory. And they want that again. How desperately they want that. So perhaps if they recreate the conditions, the good times will return because that's how it works, right? Make the conditions and the result will follow. Well, that's not a great form of reasoning, but at least they're remembering God's mighty deeds in the past and they're not quite drawing the right conclusion from it, but... There's something there. Um, There's also the possibility that they're just behaving like two-bit gangsters and going, well, you know, nice special box you've got there, isn't it, God? Shame if anything happened to it. Unless you think that this is alien to your way of thinking or to mine, we're still in the same game, aren't we? We might lay over a veneer of spirituality, but we can take things that we want and things that 
God says we should do, and we can tie them together and turn God into the glue that, that sticks them together. If I avoid this sin, then God will do such and such a thing for me. If I read my Bible this morning, then God will make the rest of the day go better. If I go to church this week, then God will da-da-da-da-da-da. Preachers aren't immune to it either. Seeing as I'm covering a sermon at short notice, God will give me a good night's sleep. Not remotely a thought that had entered my head at any point during this week. You see, we all do it. If I, then God. But the writer of 1 Samuel gives us a leg up to see the problem with this way of thinking. Well, two, in fact. So we're going to zoom first to the Philistine camp. And we heard in the passage, didn't we? They're scared when they hear that the ark is with Israel. They say, a God has come into the camp. And they cry out, woe to us, woe to us. You see, they're terrified because they think that the presence of the ark of God guarantees the presence of the God of the ark. I'll say that again. They think that the presence of the ark of God guarantees the presence of the God of the ark. They're terrified because they're thinking like the pagans that they are. And Israel is confident because they're thinking like the pagans that they ought not to be. So we see, we see one of the problems with their logic in the Philistine camp. The other that we see is a very, very subtle comment that's hidden by the narrator in the narrative. Blink, and you'd miss it. But here we go, verse 3, the elders of Israel refer to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, or of Yahweh. The narrator tells us what they bring from Shiloh, yes, The Israelites bring back the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts who is enthroned between the cherubim. You see, the elders of Israel thought that they were dealing with plain old Yahweh. Some some minor deity where you could force his hand, maybe. But he's not plain old Yahweh. He's Yahweh of hosts enthroned between the cherubim. You don't manipulate such a God. He reigns in everlasting glory, far above all human powers and dominions. He made the heavens and the earth by his word, and the sun and the moon. Yes, oh, and yeah, he also made the stars. All those things that the nations around worship, they're his creation. His throne can never be assaulted, nor can his kingdom ever be shaken. He's not a machine that you can manipulate. He's not a pagan deity that that you think will produce the goods if you just feed it the the right sort of stuff. He doesn't work like a vending machine. You supply the if and he gives you the then. He's not a god that you can use. He's not, as Mr. Beaver put it in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, he's not a tame god. But he is good. He's a God to be trusted. And he can be trusted absolutely to do what's for your good. Indeed, for your best. 
but we mustn't make the mistake of, of filling in the particulars for him where we, where we tell him, well, well, my best means this is what you've got to do for me, God. You've got to do this particular thing for this particular person at this particular time in this particular way. Well, you might be thinking, what, what should the elders of Israel have done then? They, they asked the right question. Why did the Lord? But they didn't listen for an answer. They, they didn't seek after him and his will. And when they came to thinking through, well, what do we do next? They didn't go to him in prayer. They decided that they were going to act in a way to create an ultimatum. And you see, God promises to listen to our prayers but we're going to see that he refuses to kowtow to our demands. So, let's move on. The Israelites try this plan of theirs. Lo and behold, God teaches them the lesson that we've, we've just heard. You, you can't enlist the Lord of hosts as a conscript in your own battles. The Israelites carry the ark into battle and the slaughter is even worse than before. More than seven times as many men die. The ark is taken by the Philistines. The sons of the chief priest are killed. If the previous battle was not an occasion when Israel covered herself in glory, well, this, this is a day when there is no glory Whatsoever. Indeed, Eli's daughter-in-law, the portion of 1 Samuel 4 that we skipped over, she gives birth and she calls her son no glory. It's this, this sad description of, of Israel's state. A state that that's for sure didn't begin, but ended, culminated in the taking of the Ark of the Covenant. And so having carted off the ark, the Philistines do what any honest pagan does with a captured relic. They stick it in their high temple as sort of offering come trophy for, for their main god, Dagon. So it's a sort of pagan version of, you know, moose heads on plaques or, or that sort of thing. The Philistines reason, well, Dagon gave us this victory. And so now we offer Dagon this trophy, this prize the ark of Israel's God as a token of our thanks and a proof before the whole world, Dagon, mightier than Yahweh. Looks like a bit of a blow for Yahweh, doesn't it? But it doesn't quite work out the way that a worldly observer might expect. You see, he's shown himself to be outside Israel's power and now he shows that he's far greater than the idols that people invent. So truth one was you can't manipulate the true God, so don't try. Truth two is you can't rely on false gods, so don't bother. And I'm, I'm going to focus on Dagon in a moment, but I'm just going to preface this by, by pointing out that while Israel in their plan was using the name of, of the Lord, Yahweh, you could make a good argument that that actually they'd stopped following the real Yahweh at that point, and they were following a God that they'd made up out of their own heads. They were following this God who, who had an arm that you could twist to make him do what you wanted him to do. That is, they're relying on, on some false God as well. 
But at any rate, let's look at the false god Dagon of the Philistines. So the Philistines dump the ark in the temple of their god, mighty Dagon. They go to bed, probably expecting to spend the next day celebrating mighty Dagon's mighty deeds in defeating the upstart god of these newcomer Israelites. So the next morning, you get up, brush your teeth, put on your sandals, go down to the temple of mighty Dagon to see mighty Dagon and tell mighty Dagon how mighty mighty Dagon has been. Something's gone wrong. Mighty Dagon needs a hand. He's fallen off his perch. And now he's lying down prostrate in front of this special box that we took off of Israel's God. It's almost as if he's in submission to Israel's God, but mighty Dagon's not inferior. Mighty Dagon is not inferior. I mean, mighty Dagon can't put himself back up on his pedestal, so we're going to have to do it for him. But he's not inferior. Oh, no. So pick mighty Dagon up. Put mighty Dagon back in his place. Go to bed. Get up. Brush teeth. Put on sandals. Go down to temple of mighty Dagon. Mighty Dagon's fallen on the floor again. Face down in front of the ark of Israel's God. Again. And this time he's lost his arms and his head. Mighty Dagon's getting the stuffing knocked out of him. Mighty Dagon is in a pickle, and no mistake. Because the reality is, whatever the Philistines think about Dagon, whatever it looks like from the outside, Israel's God is far, far bigger than their idol. He's bigger than any false god. They can't be relied on. They don't have the power. And that means he's bigger than our false gods, too. Yes, we have them, even as Christians, sometimes. Martin Luther wrote that a god is anything from which we expect all good and to which we take refuge in all distress. And John Calvin described the human mind as a perpetual forge of idols. And for each of us, it's going to be different, isn't it? The, the gods that we imagine, the, the things that our mind will whisper to us, that this will provide satisfaction or answers or security. We reflected for a moment, didn't we, on, on the things that 2024 might hold for us. And as we look forward to things, are, are, we, are we expecting that promotion at work that we're aiming for to give us the security that we crave? Are we thinking, well, I retire in six months and then I'll be satisfied? Are we expecting to be reunited with a loved one and then, then all of our problems will be over? Is it the prospect of a new pastor starting at City that you, you think maybe will mean life will turn a corner for you? And that's without me even going near the fact that 2024 is going to be an election year. 2024 will bring so many providences from God, but not one of them is a replacement for him. Israel, God's own chosen people, 
fell prey to the temptation to trust something other than God. Here they are, they're trusting their own plans and initiative. They're trusting that in this, in this made-up version of a God who can have his arm twisted, we can do the same. We can place our trust somewhere other than the God who created and redeemed us. But see what happens to the false gods that people put up in place of the true one. The Israelites suffered defeat after defeat to bring them back to the true God. Dagon was knocked over repeatedly and eventually the Philistines were afflicted with illness until they could bear it no more and and, and they had to acknowledge in, in some small untrusting way, you just read the next few verses and you'll see, some small untrusting way that Yahweh is indeed greater than Dagon. They want to get rid of him but they know that he's greater. Well, how about us? How about you? How about me? Are we, going to, are we going to cling to our false gods so tightly that God will have to demonstrate his superiority in, in such a stark way, knocking them flat repeatedly until we get the message? Will we wait for him to start tearing down our idols? Or will we turn from them to trust in the only true God? For he alone is worthy of our trust and our worship. And why is that? Why is he alone worthy of our trust and our worship? We've had our two truths. We've got, we've, you can't manipulate the true God. You can't rely on the false God. Now we come to our New Year's resolution, which is actually also grounded on a truth. I've kind of put the truth in the resolution let's fix our eyes on the true God who is the one who suffers his people's shame because it looked didn't it like the like Israel's God had been defeated the capture of the ark was a humiliation no doubt about it God had to suffer the humiliation in the eyes of the world of having the Ark of his covenant captured by the enemies of his people. The the Philistines were exultant. The Israelites dejected. It was a real defeat. And God, as it were, in, in a sort of emblematic form, entered into the humiliation that his people had suffered. Here he is, he suffers this crushing defeat at the hands of his people's enemies. He's humiliated before all the nations. He's made captive. He's banished from among the people of God. He's pushed out of the place that he should be and sent into captivity. And you can hear it, can't you? In all those verbs that are done to the ark of God, it is captured, it is carried, it is set. God becomes a victim of the violence that should be done to his people. And it's within that state of humiliation, not just despite it, but right within it, because of it, through it, that he is glorified. 
in the middle of defeat, he wins victory. That's our God. The God of Israel from times long past. The God of all of his people from now through until the Lord returns. He is the God who wins through losing. He's the God who is glorified through suffering shame. He's the God who partakes in what was due to his people. Israel had broken the covenant. Israel, yes, they lost many lives, but God took part in their shame. And he didn't just do that so many years ago in another part of the world, in a different age when people were poking each other with bronze spears. A time that might feel very remote from us. He did that supremely 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. The God who allowed the Ark of his covenant to be captured carried and set, is the God who one day allowed himself to be humiliated in far more stark ways. He didn't consider Godhood something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He was found in human likeness. We sang of that, didn't we, as we sang, this is our God, the servant king. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He suffered crucifixion, the most shameful of deaths, uh, of executions. Execution, the most shameful, really, of deaths. Death, the most shameful thing that could happen to the eternal, the immortal. And he suffered it all. He who allowed his ark to be captured and carried and set, allowed himself to be arrested and beaten and crucified. And it was in that suffering that he won the greatest of victories. By taking the shame of our sin upon himself, he destroyed all powers and dominions. He destroyed the power of the accuser himself. And then having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. And he did all of that for you, if you're trusting in him this morning. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in your place, condemned he stood. Sealed your pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. That's the true God. The one who bore the suffering and the shame of his people in our place. And as such, that's the God who can be trusted absolutely as we go into 2024.
for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, let's stand, let's sing of that one who humbled for a season, received the name that is above every other name,